Well, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church, those of you that aren't traveling this week. <laughs> we have a lot of siblings in Christ that are out and about, and we pray for their refreshment, and we look forward to their return. But we're glad that you're, can, you can be here today. And I was very excited to walk in this morning and see all of this. Isn't this looking good? This is all being done by guys from our church. They're coming on evenings and weekends to do all of this. And so we're gradually gaining a little bit more of a stage um, and, and a little bit more of a home field to worship from. And so we're grateful for that. If you are visiting Kishwaukee Bible Church today, we are glad that you are here. Um, we normally are preaching through books of the Bible. Um, right now, Pastor Steve is preaching through the book of Luke. But over the summer, we paused and kind of changed the series a little bit. And we're going through a series called Because You Asked. The congregation submitted questions. We've been answering those, and we're either... We might have one more Sunday of that. I'm not quite sure. Pastor C will be back in the pulpit on Sunday, and then we'll be back in Luke in a few more weeks after that. Um, also, next week, we have a fantastically bad collision of vacations. And so all of our worship team leaders will be gone next week. So we're actually borrowing a worship leader from Grace Church of DuPage. One of the guys that went through their pastoral training program is going to come out and, and lead us in worship, and it'll be our musicians and singers, but we'll have a guest leader. So when you arrive and you see a face that you don't recognize, that is Matt from Grace Church of DuPage, and he'll be with us next week, and we're grateful for that. Um, as we dive into the sermon today, we've kind of been given a few, giving a few caveats about the Because You Asked series, and I just want to remind us of those. Ultimately, God alone is all wise. Every question that has come to us has had more to it than we can address from the pulpit in one go. And so when I'm done today, there will be parts of this question left unanswered. And we realize that if there's more that you want to unpack, find me, find one of the elders. We'd love to unpack that with you to help you apply it to daily life. But we recognize that there is more than can be said in just one sermon on these questions. We recognize that what we are talking about carries with it a lot of what ifs and what abouts. Those difficult scenarios that what I say this morning, we don't always know how to apply that in difficult scenarios. And that's okay, because our God does. And we are not in this alone. And so as you struggle to apply what we're talking about to see it fit into the life that God has placed you in, we encourage you to come to the leadership if you need help. God has given us elders to shepherd. And so they will gladly walk through the what-ifs and the what-abouts that these questions are raising. We're glad that the questions were submitted. It's been, it's been fun to work through them, to have a change of pace. And um, so let's open today in the time, our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you so much that we've had the privilege and the opportunity to sing of King Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, and of the fact that we gather this morning as we talk about holiness. God, we are grateful that we don't have to perform. We don't have to satisfy you. Jesus Christ has already performed. Jesus Christ has already satisfied. And his righteousness is ours. And we are grateful. Father, we pray that we would fall under your word humbly to be changed and to be instructed. And God, I ask that it would not be my opinions and my words that are communicated, but that it would be your word that is communicated to your people for your purposes. 
In the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I work at a local bike shop one or two days a week. And there is a kind of customer that comes in with relative frequency. And you kind of get to know them and roughly a couple minutes after they walk through the door, you, can, you know who they are. And this is the customer. It is a man who is a few years past middle age and many pounds beyond healthy weight. They come into the bike shop and as we talk about how and why he wants to ride a bike, it always comes up. He was at the doctor's office, and the doctor told him, lose weight or die. And it's just kind of this stark. They come in, and the bike shop is just a foreign world. They see the fast, racy bikes, and they're all concerned about breaking one, and they don't know what to do. And so we get to help, help them get on a bike that is going to be helpful. But when the doctor says that you're going to die, it tends to get their attention. And so they realize, well, I'd better do something about this whole health business. And so they come to the bike shop. It's a great place to come to be help get some help being healthy but there's more to being healthy than just getting exercise right there's the whole diet side of the equation and trust me whatever bike shop i work at is not where they come to get help with their diet i try to make sure there's donuts there whenever i'm working like they they don't come to me for diet advice but i can help with the exercise part but the reality is that genuine physical health requires that both exercise and a healthy diet be present. If one of those is missing, you can be moving in the right direction, but still miss the goal. And holiness is kind of like that, in that it has a couple parts to it. And we often focus on one part, but we can miss a very significant part of holiness in the process. As we work through the sermon this morning, I'm going to be talking about both parts of holiness but I'm kind of going to be emphasizing the part that we often overlook. And we'll get to what that part is in just a few minutes. But before we unpack that too much, let's start by reading our passage again. John 13, it's going to be on the screen behind me. And it says this, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Well, the setting for this passage is um, that Judas has just left to betray Jesus. And Jesus is is with the remaining 11 disciples in the upper room mere hours before he was arrested and tortured and killed. Hours before he became my sin and your sin. Hours before he received the full wrath of God that you and I have earned. Hours before he completed the redemption of his people. In a nutshell, in that passage, Jesus says, the Father and the Son are bringing glory to each other. It's just this constantly growing ball of glory as they feed each other. And that work is about to crescendo at the cross. And after that, I'm going away. Disciples, 
you don't get to join us quite yet. Instead, I want you to stay behind and love each other in such a way that the world knows you are mine. Be known by your love is what Jesus says at that moment to his disciples. Jesus says that we are to be known, to to be defined by our love. Love is the mark by which we are to be known for above all else. Think about that for a minute. Love is the mark by which we are to be known for above all else. Creator God could have chosen anything for his people to be known by. He is holy, holy, holy. He possesses all knowledge. He has caused all that has been and has ordained all that is to come. He could have chosen anything for his people to be known by, but he chose love. Love. And if we're honest with ourselves, there's often other things that we lead off with, aren't there? There are other things that we can want to be known by as individual Christians or even as a church. There's lots that we put out there, but Jesus told us that love should be what distinguishes this gathering of people from every other gathering of people. I was in downtown Sycamore this morning, and if you had to detour to get here, it's because there's a whole bunch of really old cars sitting there right now. And they're cool cars. But I was walking around a little bit as I made my way to the office and back out, and it's a gathering of people that want to be known for metal. That's what cars boil down to, is fancy metal. And here's a group of people that are are sitting with pride next to their cars. And they've invested a lot of effort into their cars. I'm not knocking that. But that's what that group of people is known for, fancy cars. We, the gathering of God's people in the body of Christ, are to be known by love. Nothing more, nothing less. Love. But before we keep talking about love, let's define it. In a sermon a couple weeks ago, Pastor Steve defined gospel love as the self-sacrificing pursuit of oneness with others through forgiving, serving, and caring for others in the expense of self. I'll repeat that. And we're going to come back to that multiple times through the sermon. So you can try to write fast or you can catch it next time. The self-sacrificing pursuit of oneness with others through forgiving, serving, and caring for others at the expense of self. When I talk about the love that's supposed to define us this morning, I'm not talking about positive and pleasant warm fuzzies that we can have for other people. And I'm not talking about a disposition towards others. I'm talking about sacrificial, active pursuit of oneness with our brothers and sisters. It's an action. It's a choice that we have to make. It is costly to us. And merely feeling it doesn't cut it. Imagine for a moment what life would be like as a church body. And I don't think that we're horrible at this, but I think we have some room to grow at this because we are still sinners, aren't we? But imagine what life would be like as a church body if we were truly, continually actively striving for oneness with each other. If we allowed nothing to separate, if if when we began, we saw a barrier, an emotional, a mental, or whatever kind of barrier begin to arise, if we actively pursued oneness, 
and we broke down that barrier so that we could be one. If we, if we built relationships and invested in one another knowing that we are to be one, if we treated church attendance not from a, I guess I'll go, but from a, this is who I'm to be one with. I need to be with them. I need to know them. I need to do life with them. I need to be uncomfortable with them at times if I'm going to be one with them. If we actively pursued that above all else, love would ooze out of these doors and our community would know that we are Christ's. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And yet, I'm a sinner, and last I checked, you were a sinner, and so loving sinners is hard. How do we do that? How do we actually do what Christ is calling us to? Well, I'm not going to totally answer that question today, because we have another question to answer. But they're related. The question that we're going to work through today is, how do we understand holiness in a way that drives us towards humility towards others rather than a judgmental spirit? I really appreciate this question. It acknowledges our propensity to look down on others. And yet it's not content with that. This isn't a question that's aimed at fixing the others. It's a question that deals with our hearts. It recognizes that there is a right attitude, and it desires to live that out. It's a great question. So let's work on an answer for that question together. I could have answered this question um, around a sense of growing our conviction that it is merely God's grace that has us where we are at. When we see brothers and sisters that are a different place, part of how we can be humble with them is by recognizing that I am where I am by the grace of God and for the purposes of God. And wherever I am, there's a brother further along that could look at me and say, what's going on in his life? We're, we're all in that position. And as our lives become gradually more aligned with Christ, we interact with those that are younger in the faith and they're facing struggles that we didn't or that we faced a while ago. Um, and we can, we can distance ourselves. I could have answered just unpacking that thought, but I want to push a bit further. I want the answer to go deeper than that answer. You see, this question puts its finger on something very, very important. And that is that sin isolates. Sin isolates. The question identifies that there's a, a distance, a barrier of some sort between us and others. When the very thought of they're there and I'm here, how do I think about them, acknowledges the distance, the isolation, the barrier. That isolation is caused by sin. The effect of sin is isolation from God and from each other. And I'm not referring to sin in somebody else. I'm referring to sin in general. The effect of sin is isolation from God and from each other. And as we realize that isolation runs counter to everything that God is doing, the isolation caused by sin becomes something to address, to work on. It's not a side effect. It is something that has to be addressed. So our question is, how do we understand holiness in a way that drives us towards humility 
towards others rather than a judgmental spirit? And the answer in a nutshell that we're going to unpack today is by growing our understanding of holiness to include reconciliation as God's goal rather than merely focusing on moral uprightness. By growing our understanding of holiness to include reconciliation as God's goal rather than merely focusing on moral uprightness. In short, if our understanding of holiness enables us or allows us to look down on someone else, we're misunderstanding holiness. We're only looking at half of the equation. If holiness and if our view of holiness enables us or allows us to look down on someone else, we're missing out on half of what holiness is. We're going to take a step back from the question and make our way back to it with an answer. Um, but along the way, we're going to see that the problem is actually larger than we often think it is, which is a really helpful way of answering a question. Let's deal not with the side effect, but with the real deal. There is more to, to talk about. There's a few terms that we're going to be using that I want to define. We've already defined love, but once again, for the record, gospel love, as Steve defined it, is a self-sacrificing pursuit of oneness with others through forgiving, serving, and caring for them at the expense of self. And then holiness. I define holiness is the absolute perfection of the qualities that God values and the absolute absence of the qualities that God despises. Holiness is the absolute perfection of the qualities that God values and the absolute absence of the qualities that God despises. When I say that God is holy, if you've been in church for any amount of time, what comes to mind is probably some sense that uh, lying and cheating and stealing and immorality and so forth, uh, it's offensive to God, it is counter to God, it is totally apart from God. And you're right. That is all true. Those, those moral sins are offensive to God and counter to God and completely apart from Him. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pushed our understanding of sin and holiness to say the problem isn't just the acting out, the problem is in your hearts. Because the problem isn't uh, just that you are immoral. The problem is that you have lust in your heart. The problem isn't just anger, it's hate. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes our problem so much bigger than we could ever handle on our own. And he does that to drive us in dependence to himself. We cannot achieve holiness on our own. That is a problem for us. But praise God that God interacts with sinners in order to deal with our sin. God interacts with this world in order to deal with our sin. As Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist saw him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God interacts with this world, with us sinners, to deal with our sin. Jesus told his disciples that when he left, the Holy Spirit was going to come and the Holy Spirit was going to convict the world of sin because God deals with sin. And that is great news for us who are sinners, who have no way of being right with God on our own. But is removing sin all that 
that God is after? Is removing our sin all that God is after? When the post-middle-aged, post-healthy-weight men come into the bike shop looking for help to get healthy, we can help them with part of the equation. But there's more to genuine health than just exercise. When we think of holiness from a merely moral standpoint, the lying, cheating, stealing, and the heart behind that, we're only looking at part of the equation. There is more to holiness than that because there's more to God than just not liking sin. There's more to God than just not liking sin. Imagine a master chef gathering ingredients. Um, when I gather ingredients, a PB&J comes out the other side. When a master chef gathers ingredients, it's appropriate to have high expectations of what is to come. In the process of gathering the ingredients, though, let's say the chef realizes that the fridge was unplugged and his ingredients have gone bad. And the eggs are bad and the broccoli's brown and nothing is good. So he can either make his meal with the bad ingredients or he can replace the ingredients. Those are his two choices. If he makes the meal with the bad ingredients, what happens? Well, the whole thing is ruined. There is, there is no quality outcome. There is no celebration of the chef's ability. There is no enjoyment of what he has done. The whole thing is ruined by the bad ingredients. If he throws out the bad ingredients, goes to the store, gets new ingredients, puts them on the counter, and then stops. He just gets his new ingredients and puts them on the counter. Has he accomplished his goal? He stopped short. He has the fresh ingredients, but they exist for a purpose. The problem with the bad eggs and the broccoli and the whatever else he was using wasn't that they would have ruined the whole and made a bad thing. Or I'm sorry, no, the problem with the bad ingredients wasn't just that the ingredients were bad. The problem was that they would have ruined what the chef was doing. He had a feast in mind, and bad ingredients ruined that feast. Good ingredients make that feast possible. Just as placing new, fresh ingredients on the counter doesn't cut it for the chef. There is more to be done. Simply removing our sin doesn't cut it for God. He has something greater in mind. God has something greater in mind than just removing our sin. God's intended outcome for his plan for this world isn't merely that we would be morally upright. God's intended outcome for this world is absolute and complete unity of all things under Christ. That is what God is after. And he deals with our sin to bring us joyfully into unity with Christ. Apart from him dealing with our sin, our relationship with Christ remains one of rebellion. The Bible says that we are enemies of God's on our own. That is who we were. But God deals with our sins so that he can take us from being enemies of God to being children, to absolute, complete unity with Christ. That is what God is after. And so in order to accomplish that, he deals with our sin. 
if moral uprightness, the absence of moral sin, is what God was after, then moral excellence is what we as his people should be known for. But complete reconciliation is what God is after. Absolute, complete reconciliation of those who are enemies to be his children, of that which was in rebellion to be in submission. That is what God is after. And because that is what God is after, love is, to, is what you and I are to be known for. God is by nature a reconciling God. And so love is to be the mark of his people. Our redemption is the precious means through which God brings us to peaceful unity under Christ. Our redemption is the means through which God brings us to peaceful unity under Christ. And I'm not minimizing the cross of Christ in saying that. It, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a larger picture. It is good that God didn't just save us and let us be. It is good that the chef doesn't just replace the bad ingredients with new ones. He has something in mind. He has something greater in mind. And the great thing that that chef is accomplishing puts his skill on display for the pleasure and enjoyment of those around him. God is reconciling us to himself. He deals with our sins so that he can reconcile us. And when he does that, the fullness of who God is is put on display for his creation to see and to enjoy. We are brought to a place of loving who God is rather than hating him. We can enjoy God's plan because he has reconciled us through Jesus Christ. That is awesome news. And when we look at the redeeming work of Christ and we stop at the fact that we have been made new, we are missing out on the feast the chef is preparing. We don't want to do that. There is an intent, a purpose for which God redeemed his people, and that is reconciliation. Ephesians 1 unfolds this pretty clearly. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. And I'm going to read it, and I want you to look for both the means, the way that God's purpose is accomplished, and for the end, what it is that God is accomplishing. Follow along. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Our redemption through the blood of Christ is the way through which God brings us into unity with Christ. If redemption is separate from God's plan to unify, it becomes merely out with the old, in with the new. The bad ingredients are thrown out, the fresh ingredients are set on the counter. When we separate our redemption from God's plan, that is what happens. When we separate God's redemption from his purpose for it, our focus becomes moral uprightness, moral excellence. Well, sin is most definitely one part of the holiness equation. Our rebellion against God 
the things that we enjoy doing that are counter to him, the thoughts and desires that we have that are counter to him, are a stench to God. So much so that he crushed his son to remove that from us. Striving in faith for moral uprightness is good. Part of being one with Christ is living in a way that is pleasing to Christ. So I'm not, I'm not throwing doubt that out at all. God's plan hinges on our redemption, but it doesn't end at our redemption. God's plan hinges on our redemption. Redemption is the glorious means through which God accomplishes his plan. I'm not minimizing that. I'm exalting it because all of a sudden we're not just fresh ingredients left on the counter. We are a part of the feast that the master chef is preparing to make himself known. You and I reconciled to God are the means through which God makes himself known. That is incredible. That is what God is doing through Jesus Christ. And to make sure that we catch this in the word of God and not in Jeff's words... We're going to make a couple stops through, the, stops through the Bible to see that. Last week in Genesis, Jim read for us the joyous and beautiful creation of God's image bears. Today we're going to read the, the next step, which wasn't so joyous or beautiful. Genesis 3, it'll be, it'll be behind me. Now the, serp, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was be desired to, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And also she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Before this moment, Adam and Eve, both together and with God, enjoyed perfect relational oneness. There was no shame, no separation, no isolation of any sort. It was a perfect relationship like we have not yet experienced since then. But when Adam and Eve sinned, two relationships were broken. Their relationship with each other, they went and put clothes on. Their relationship with God, they hid. Two relationships were broken. Isolation started at the fall. There was no isolation before there was sin. Isolation is the result of sin. It started at the fall. We're going to move to Ephesians 2 in just a minute. And earlier in, the chap- in chapter 2, Paul shows us Redemption applied to us individually. We see our desperate need for it, and we see God's fantastic provision through Jesus Christ. We who were dead in our sins have been made alive with Christ. Sin is paid for. Redemption has been carried out. And then as he continues in chapter 2 of Ephesians, 
Paul shows us the result of redemption applied. He says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is saying the deepest, strongest, widest barrier ever known to man, the Jew-Gentile division, has been broken down so that Jews and Gentiles can become one. And if they can become one, you and I can become one because there are no barriers of that magnitude separating us. Our sin is bad, but it's not as bad as what they had to deal with, with the Jew-Gentile separation. And as God breaks down those barriers and brings unity amongst men, collectively we are reconciled to God. There is reconciliation horizontally. There is reconciliation vertically. The isolation caused by sin in both regards has been solved by Jesus. And that is great news. Because what we caused by sin and could never undo has been undone for us. The isolation has been solved. And yet, we still struggle. We still struggle in relationships with each other. We still struggle in our walk with God. We don't have perfect fellowship. Because while the isolation problem is gone... The experience isn't yet. The isolation problem has been solved by Jesus, but we still experience it here and now. But the problem will be gone. The problem will be gone. The isolation that sin brought into the world will be absolutely abolished forever. And we know the words of Revelation 21 where we see a picture of this where we are promised that the isolation will be gone once and for all. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. When sin, when rebellion is fully and finally destroyed, isolation is abolished, absolute reconciliation will have been accomplished and experienced. That's what God is doing. God is by nature a reconciler. It is what he is doing in this world because it is who he is. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. It isolates us from each other. So in God, Jesus removes the sin and restores the relationship. God, out of the overflow of who he is, is uniting all things in Christ. He is making parts that had been in conflict, us and us with God, he is bringing absolute positive peace. And the peace that God brings is not like the peace that UN peacekeepers try to keep, where it's just to keep people from shooting at each other. The peace that God brings is that he gives me an unnatural love for you and he gives you an unnatural love for me and he gives us an unending love for him. That is the peace that God brings. We don't experience that fully now, but God promises complete, eternal 
celebration and enjoyment of that with him. The fresh ingredients that the master chef brings to the table, he will prepare his feast with. We will enjoy and know God for who he is because we will have experienced his reconciliation. The angels in heaven are outside of that reconciliation. They have not been in conflict with God. They have not been in conflict with each other the way that we are. And they're in heaven, and they watch what God is doing down here, and they long to understand it. I remember being little growing up, thinking, man, it would be so fun to be an angel. Like, you can zip around and do stuff and know everything, and that'd just be a ton of fun. But Peter tells us the angels are in heaven with all of those abilities, and they look at us, and they say, we don't understand God the way that you do. We have not been redeemed by God. We have not been reconciled by God. And they long to understand it. We will know God as he is because of the reconciliation that he's bringing about through Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. He isn't just making us new. He isn't taking a sinful, dirty Jeff and making a clean, shiny Jeff. God is not satisfied with that. There is a reason that God is changing me from the inside out. It's to reconcile me to to himself and to you. That is what God is about. It is central to who God is. And that is why when we think of holiness, merely in terms of the things that we're to do and not to do, and the thoughts that we're to have and not to have, when we think of moral holiness like that, and, and we ignore the relational holiness of a God whose purpose for creating is to reconcile, to make himself known as the reconciler. When we limit our understanding of holiness, we're not going to get it right. It's like somebody that comes to the bike shop to say, I need to get some exercise, and then buys a bike and goes across the street to McDonald's. They're missing the, 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 they're not going to get the complete picture. They're not going to have the complete effect. They're going to get in better shape, but they're not going to be healthy. We can follow rules and do things and avoid things and live better. We can become more morally upright. And there's good in that. But if that is where we stop, we are missing out on God's reconciling purposes for this world. And if we understand holiness merely in terms of moral do's and don'ts, we have an incomplete view of holiness. Who God is demands that we live a certain way. And who God is demands that we relate to one another in a certain way. If we remove either of those, we have an incomplete view of holiness. I think in in our circles in Christianity, we focus on the moral side of that, and we can we can be weaker in the relational side of that. There are other circles that really elevate the relational side and say, let's all be together regardless of what we think, and they, move, they lose the other side. There's danger both ways. I just, knowing myself and, and this church, we, we land on the, we, we emphasize the stuff we're supposed to do, and we can lose a little bit of the relational side. And I say that not pointing fingers and not condemning. I say that as one beaten up by this as I've studied this week. I begin to define what it means to be a Christ follower by what I do and not by love. 
we are to be known by our love. Love is to be our logo. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The righteousness that God has given me in Christ is precious. I am so grateful for it. I have, I have no right to stand before God apart from what Christ has done for me. But I cannot isolate the righteousness that has been given to me from the reason it was given to me. To reconcile me to you and us to God. My sin and my sinfulness is dealt with, removed, so that I can be reconciled to you. And your sin and sinfulness is removed so that you can be reconciled to me. And together we are reconciled to God. That is what God is doing. So let's, let's wrap this up into our answer. Our question is how do we understand holiness in a way that drives us towards humility, towards others, rather than a judgmental spirit? And our answer is by growing our understanding of holiness to include reconciliation as God's goal rather than merely focusing on moral uprightness. We're not just, God isn't just getting rid of bad ingredients and getting fresh ingredients. God is making, getting fresh ingredients so that he can create, he can gather and create the perfect feast, which we will enjoy with him forever to his glory. Here's a question for, for us to ask ourselves as we relate. When I see a brother or a sister, do I see separation caused by sin? Or do I see oneness to be pursued? Can I possibly be faithful to the reconciliation that God is accomplishing when I willingly allow something to come between me and my brother? Can I do that? Or am I to identify whatever that is and deal with it so that you and I can be reconciled as we are reconciled to God? If that is what God is about, then that, brothers and sisters, is what we are called to. We're not just called to, to identify sin in other people's lives to try to force them to be morally, more morally upright. We're not to be known by our moral excellence. We're to be known by our love. Now, when I see sin in a brother's life, that sin is isolating him from us and him from God. So the loving thing to do is to pursue that brother. We don't overlook that. We, we pursue it to deal with it so that he can be reconciled to us and us to God. That's what we have to be about. But if we lead with the moral side of holiness, we create separation. When we lead with the relational side of holiness, the fact that God is a reconciler, then I see someone not far off. I see someone to become one with. I see someone to love. That's hard. That is very hard. I think of 
relationships in my own life that are not what they should be. This is convicting. It is so much easier to identify ourselves by what we do right and identify others by what they do wrong rather than to identify ourselves by love. But love is what we are called to. Love is what we are commanded to. God, if God's end goal is unity in Christ, reconciliation, and if holiness is the absolute perfection of what God values, then feeding the isolation is actually an offense to God. If I, claiming holiness, separate myself from a brother in Christ, I am feeding the isolation and I'm violating what God values, and that violates holiness. If God is reconciling all things to Christ, and if holiness is the absolute perfection of what he values, and if God values reconciliation, if that is why he is dealing with our sin in order to reconcile us, then we need to live a certain way. We need to be in in relationship to one another a certain way. With that in mind, follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is inherently a reconciler. It is his nature. It is his purpose. And we simply cannot represent him well when we focus on the moral failure at the expense of relational holiness. Those two aren't at odds. They go together. And if, if we're to n- not be proud as we look at those around us, if we are to engage in genuinely humble relationships one, with one another while having a high view of, hum, of holiness, then we have to recognize that part of holiness is reconciling. That part of holiness is viewing each other not as those isolated people that I'm forced to sit close to on a Sunday morning, but to view one another as those whom God in Christ is making one. Brothers and sisters, that is why God gathers his church to display the reconciling nature of his work. It isn't so that we can come and feel good about ourselves. It isn't just so that we can have an avenue to serve or to get fed, although those things do happen and those things are good. God designed a system where we gather to be the body of Christ because he is inherently a reconciler and reconciliation is inherently relational. We need to be together so that we can obey King Jesus' command, love one another. Let love be your logo. Be known 
by love above anything else. We have to come together. We are different people. We have different preferences. But that doesn't matter. We are being made one with Christ. The unity that we have in this room through Jesus Christ is so much deeper and powerful and eternal than the really cool cars that are uniting people in downtown Sycamore right now. Those will rust and pass away. The righteousness of Christ that dwells within us, that is carrying out the reconciling work of God, is eternal. That's not going anywhere. And as, as we look at one another, our view of holiness has to grow to include the reconciling intent of God. When we pursue moral uprightness and reconciliation as intently as God does, we are living out holiness. When we are loving, that is when we are loving each other as he has loved us. That is when we will be known by our love. That is when love becomes our logo. So let's wrap this up. The question on the table is, is how can we cling to holiness while still being humble to our brother that might not be living up to our view of holiness? At the end of the day, there's a framework in that question that allows us to maintain the distance. There's a little bit of an us and them. Just as the guy that comes into the bike shop to get started doing some exercise also needs to improve his diet, as we, we need to grow our understanding of holiness to include both the moral uprightness that is true to who God is and a reconciliation that matches who God is. We can't favor one or the other. Both are necessary if we're to have an accurate understanding of holiness and both are necessary if we are to love each other as Christ has loved us. God in his wisdom and goodness has had us journey through this very broken world where we in very painful, tear-inducing ways experience the isolation caused by sin. And I am grieved that that is the case, that we experience that. And yet, God has arranged that so that we understand the reconciliation and peace that God brings. We understand reconciliation and peace so much more because of this world than if God had just placed us in a conflict-free zone for all of eternity. We know who God is because of what he is doing right here, right now, and that helps us treasure the reconciling nature of God for all of eternity. In the meantime, it's hard. And we don't all get along that great sometimes. Or we can put on a veneer and then leave, and our true thoughts about each other can emerge. Love is a self-sacrificing pursuit of oneness with others through forgiving, serving, and caring for them at the expense of self. We have to aim for love, not mere moral uprightness when we think of holiness. So a few things to think through as we go into the week. Who do you need to forgive that is really hard to forgive? And who do you need to serve in the body of Christ that is really hard to serve?
who do you need to express care to that is really hard to express care to? If loving involves forgiving, serving, and caring, and love is to be our logo, what love is to be what we are known by, then we need to not just wait for those opportunities to come along, but actively go for them. Who in the body of Christ do you need to forgive that is really hard to forgive? Do you need to serve that is really hard to serve? That you need to care for that is really hard to express care for? We cannot answer those questions based on our ability. Our, our flesh rises up and, man, my ability to forgive and to serve and care is about that much. We have to answer these questions based on the righteousness of Christ that lives within us when we trust in him. Based on the fact that the God who is reconciling all the world has entrusted that ministry to us and that God's purposes will be accomplished. When you think about how hard it is to love, don't forget that God has promised to make it succeed. God's plan will be carried out. God's purposes will be completed. Love is how we are to be made known. It is how we are to be identified because he is a reconciler. And that love is not in vain. It doesn't depend on us. He will accomplish it because this is his world and his plan. And by his grace, we are his people. His love will succeed. Let's pray. And I'm going to encourage you to pray regularly throughout this week that God would show you and help you act on those people that you need to forgive and to serve and to care for that are very difficult to do that with. Let's pray. Father, we gather before you this morning as those who desperately need you. We gather before you as those that can uh, take the work that you have done in our lives and view it through our sinful selfishness and we can puff ourselves up and we can become proud and we can look down on others. We can wonder why they're not where we are at. We can identify sin that separates us from others. And Father, I ask that you would save us from that. I ask that you would work in us individually to make Kishwaukee Bible Church a place that is known and marked by love, that you would cause us to pursue one another, to actively go after one another, to forgive and to serve and to care in such a way that your love oozes out of this building and the community knows that we are yours, not because of how great we are, but because we love despite our sin. We can't do that, God. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that we are individually difficult to love and that we fail at loving those around us. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your help and we rejoice in the certainty that your name will be made known, that your glory will go forth and that we will enjoy God the Father and King Jesus for all of eternity. In your name we pray, amen.